to episode seven of Pathways with the New England Free Jacks. Uh, today, we're going to be crossing the Atlantic and joining the Beckett family out of England. Uh, uh, gentlemen and, and lady, uh, you'll have to uh, inform me where exactly within England uh, you guys are currently. Um, and we're going to be discussing their experiences, um, the phenomenal, phenomenal rugby ability within the Beckett family, um, and sort of what they're up to and where their journeys have taken them today. So, uh, Charlie and Sarah, thank you so much for joining me uh, today and welcome. Oh, thanks for having us, Tom. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. It's really, really cool. Sweet. I know you guys have been busy training today. So to bring our energy back up, we're going to get started with a little quick fire. So I'm going to I'm going to chuck out a word and you guys are going to throw out the first one uh, that comes to mind. So we'll go Sarah, then Charlie, um, sister, brother. Uh, the first one is Ruck. Fly straight in. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Charlie? Uh, clear it. Nice. Quins? My club. Essie's club. Clara's <laughs> club. Yeah. Good. USA rugby? Good test match. Uh, sleeping giant. Hey, there it is. For a debut, I believe, Sarah, USA rugby. We'll touch on that later. Uh, Gloucester? Charles club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my club. Yeah, kind of, kind of like coming home recently. So yeah, I'm, it feels like I'm rugby home. Home. Yeah, I like that. And last one, Twickenham. Awesome. Yeah, HQ. HQ. Brilliant. Awesome. Well, um, Charlie, Sarah, thanks so much for, for jumping on today. It's going to be a real sort of different show um, to the to the norm where we typically focus on American rugby. But uh, we're going to be, as I mentioned, jumping the Atlantic and, and checking in with, we'll start with Charlie. I'm going to try my best, mate, to sort of do a little bit of an introduction for yourself and correct me if, if anything's incorrect here. But um Charlie's had an impressive career to date, as is Sarah. Um, you were with Leicester from the ages of 16 to 20. Uh, had a stint with London Welsh, England age grade, including England 20s. Um, Gloucester from the ages of 20 to 22, uh, where you made an Anglo-Welsh Cup and European Challenge Cup appearance, um, or multiple. Uh, Captain Gloucester A for two seasons. Uh, Harbury College RFC for a stint. Then you went to Jersey Reds in the championship for uh, two seasons. Yep, two seasons. I, I believe. And then uh, aside from that, you're a, a Talking Rugby Union column, columnist, uh, a pro wrestling show co-host, and also presenter for the Red Alert uh, Cornish Pirates um, pod there. Well, were. So, yeah, so, I've, so yeah, the Jersey Reds Red Alert podcast when I was at Jersey, we launched that and got hosting that. So, um, yeah. Basically, I just like talking. So they're like, right, well, we'll see if anyone wants to listen to him. So that was that was kind of why we thought we'd go with that. Good stuff, man of many trades. Yeah, man of many trades, master of none, I think is the saying, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> hopefully trying to, try to master the on-field stuff a little bit more. But yeah, so no, that's, um, only when someone lays it out like that do I realise how roundabout I've been. Like, I left home at 16, left so we obviously Liverpool's our home. I left home at 16 and I haven't really stopped moving since. So it wasn't the way... I saw my career going, like, I ideally at 16, like, S will tell you, I left home at 16 for Leicester, and that was the plan to be there till I was 35, played 20 years for Leicester and do that. Um, that's not the way my career's gone, um, for a number of reasons I'm sure we'll get into at some point, but I've been very fortunate that I've played for a lot of great clubs, and like you said at the start, like, I've, um, through a million weird things that have happened through the pandemic, and me being a free agent because I chose to leave Jersey, it was the worst thing that happened because of the time, but then actually ended up being the best thing, because when Gloucester had a little bit of an injury crisis in the second row. Thankfully, I was around, went on trial, signed for them. So, like I said, it felt like I've come home, slotted straight back into Gloucester. 
and about because I'm currently in Cheltenham living here and yeah loving life back at Gloucester but it's been um it's been a wild eight years since I left home it sure is I was going to say congratulations obviously you made your prem rugby debut um against series uh two weeks ago now yeah or, two or weeks last... ago yesterday was it a week ago to a week ago yesterday yeah a week ago yesterday I think yeah week ago yesterday and maybe you can just touch on that experience and sort of how special that was for you oh yeah mate like it was first the first thing is like and we'll get into i'm sure later when we talk about what it was like growing up in our house i hate losing like essie does we we both hate losing. also when i say essie that's sarah that's what we call her so i've realized that people will be listening going who the heck is this essie you keep talking about <laughs> um yeah so but first and foremost was gutted with the results and that we couldn't get the win down there because there was times that i felt we were very much in the game and then their pack unfortunately took it away from us in the second half. But for me, it was it was a huge personal milestone because actually I did four years at Leicester, two years at Gloucester, and I'd never managed to actually play in the Premiership. And the reasons for that, there are a million reasons, but I was probably a little naive at times thinking just playing well for the reserve team, captain the reserve team, playing well in the Cup in Europe would give them a shot. And maybe I didn't force the issue a little bit enough, really, with the coaches of what do I need to do to play Premiership? And then... I um, got released from Gloucester and went to Jersey, had two seasons there. And then with the pandemic, it seemed like going back to the Premiership wasn't going to be what happened, which was a shame. Obviously, massive. that was my um, aim was to get back to the Premiership. So I'd probably come to peace with the fact that I wasn't going to play in the Premiership, which was always be something I'd be disappointed in. But I was looking at options abroad, looking at trying to travel the world a bit of rugby and seeing more, more of the world and other styles of rugby. And then... It was like a whirlwind of five weeks from getting the call from Gloucester of, look, there's a chance for you here, to five weeks later I was playing the Premiership, making that debut. So it was a really big moment personally for me. I was quite emotional after the game, uh, yeah. in the thick of it. Like, I'm about to go and run into 130 kilos Samoa and I can't really think, oh, this is a big moment. <laughs> but after the game, I had on the, bus, on the bus back up with Gloucester, I had a few moments, a few messages from family and loved ones where I kind of took a moment for myself and realised it was a big achievement. Um, but... My plan is really the first of many. I don't want to be a one-game wonder, plays one game and never gets a sniff again. So hopefully it'll be the first of many. But yeah, it was it was a big day. I think for me, I'm for the family, like the likes of Sarah, Kate, or other, my other sister, Essie's twin, our mum and dad couldn't have been more supportive for me. So I think a big day for us all. So I'm very lucky that I had an amazing support system. My girlfriend as well, whose house I'm in now, through lockdown and through me not having a job and panicking a little bit about where's the next club going to be, has been amazing the whole time. So big day for a lot of us but as I say hopefully the first of many yeah top man uh, it's funny how it all has sort of a way of working out and it's a testament to you mate I think all the all the sort of uh well the colossal uh response to you being making that debut across social media that that I could see from here in the states was awesome to see and a, a credit to you know how you go about your business as a rugby professional and as a human being mate so oh thank uh, you that's very well, kind. well done and then uh Sarah um I'm gonna have a crack at your uh, bio to date. Um, you're a number eight by trade. Um, yeah, mix it up in the back row, wherever they want me. Good stuff. Uh, you started your, your career with Fairwood late, uh, Waterloo Ladies. Uh, you made your debut at 18, um, won the championship in 2016-17, that season there. Um, made your Tyrell uh, Premier 15s debut uh, at the same time. Um, you uh, made your debut and I oh, sorry there in 2017 uh, England Red Roses debut in November 2018 uh, against the USA in a, in a thrashing win there 57-5 heartbreaking for us over here picked up a full-time England contract in 2019 and featured in every Six Nations game that year 
and then moved to Harlequins in July 2019. So it's been a hell of a ride for you to date. Um, Thanks for jumping on. Perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about sort of that quick transition to being a, you know, a starter in the international rugby scene. No, yeah. I mean, thank you for having me, firstly. Um, it's awesome to be on. Um, so I made my debut at Field Waterloo, which is both of our childhood clubs. So we actually live on that road that the club is on. Um, so, I mean, that club is our club, really. Um, I made my senior debut there. I turned 18, I think, on the Wednesday and debuted on the Saturday um, against Saracens. So it was a bit of a baptism of fire. We had them in the cup. Um, and yeah, that was so cool. And then that September, we went into the premiership after winning the championship um, and got my premiership debut with Waterloo and then um, was there. Um, and then I got picked up by the England under-20s that year. We, we played France home and away. And then we toured Canada um, playing Canada and the US actually um, and had a sort of a decent tour there and then sort of came back and um, I got a call from the forwards coach at like the full England setup to say oh we'd like to bring you into camp and I mean I've been really lucky ever since really I've been able to <clears throat> hang about um, been lucky enough that they want to keep me on so and then obviously made my debut in November 2018 which was just amazing um, I actually made my debut at Alliance Park like Charlie made his um, prem debut at Alliance Park which is really cool Wow. And then, um, yeah, I've been lucky enough that they want to keep me around. And um, we got given professional co- contracts in January 2019. So 28 of us are full-time professional athletes in England now, which is amazing. The investment from the RFU and them really investing into our game to allow us to be professional athletes is um fantastic I mean it's pushing the women's game in the right direction and I hope that other unions will take that sort of step forward soon and invest in their women's programs because I think that's where a big future of the game lies yeah absolutely no that that is amazing and obviously I want to touch on the women's game in England in general as well um but now you play for Quinns um but before we before we talk about that I just want to take it back a little bit uh your your dad and granddad, I believe, both represented Waterloo, uh, Fairwood Waterloo first fifteen. Is that correct? Yeah. And so, yeah, is, is uh, Fairwood Waterloo is that basically a club side in in England, or a, yeah, is that right? Yeah. So, so like, sorry, go on, John. Uh, well, yeah, I'll let S S can talk more about the women's section because they've always been she shielded me more, but they've been always pioneering in the women's section and always had a very high um high up in the levels women's section in English rugby, but. For, um, from men's rugby point of view, Waterloo. So our granddad, so it's actually our granddad on our mum's side, who was the one who played, he was president. That's how dad actually met mum, was through playing at the club. So dad moved to Liverpool because his best mate, my godfather, lived in Liverpool and played a bit of rugby. And they were the two, actually, they both came out and played in Boston together for Mystic River. So oh, nice. my dad and my yeah, godfather yeah. both played for Mystic River. So, yeah, so dad, that's how, so my granddad was president and chairman of the club for years. And I don't know if he definitely played for the first 15, but he definitely told us he did. So no one really questioned him because he was Mr. Waterloo. So we don't know what the full story there is with um, with him. But dad played just shy of or just over 200, 200 or 300 times for Waterloo. I'm not sure. He'll kill me for not knowing. Um, and when dad played in the 90s, they were uh, top of the championship. So second level of English rugby side. Um, just missed out on the premiership. Oh, I think they're in the premiership. No, no, they never made the top league, yes. They never made the top league. Oh, they, God, they, longer the day then. But they played the likes of Bath and Harlequins in the cup and had international players such as Ben Kay, Austin Healy, Will Greenwood. So the big names started at Waterloo. So, and then 
as the professional era came in, they kind of didn't manage it too well and they've fallen down the leagues and now play in just under uh, the league under... The, so they must be fifth level of English rugby now, I believe. I think they're fifth level. So they're now just a local club, community club. But they're the biggest rugby club in Liverpool, which is where we're from, which is a massively football-dominated city. And then the northwest of England is a massively rugby league-dominated area. So the, they're the biggest rugby union club apart from Sale Sharks in the northwest. Yeah. And yeah, like I said... Our house, Dad's house, is on the road that the rugby club is. We we couldn't be more involved with Waterloo if we tried it. It just is our club. Whenever we're home, we'll both go down and watch the Million Juniors when we can, watch the first team on a Saturday. Like It is our club. And then I'm sure S will tell you more about from the women's section how they, they've kind of been pioneering from the women's point of view. Yeah, so I'm not completely sure when they started up. I think maybe mid-90s, maybe. Um, but So Jill Burns, who was the England World Cup winning like legend that she is um she's always been a waterloo player um and i think they had a lot of that side who won the world cup at waterloo and then a lot of them moved down south um and then waterloo sort of the women's section basically kept women's rugby in the northwest alive really um it gave players from the in the northwest a good standard of rugby to come and play like when i was there players were traveling an hour and a half two hours to come to training so that they could play top flight women's rugby um and the investment and the emphasis that they've put on women's rugby in the northwest um has been phenomenal and i don't think anybody really values what they've done enough um and i think they've just done a phenomenal job in trying to keep women's rugby alive and pushing it forwards and pioneering for um more recognition and sort of more parity with the men's sides um and i think there's a lot of people in the club who i think sometimes you find people who aren't educated on women's rugby or don't know it happens that's never true at waterloo everyone knows that there's a women's side and that we play well and that that people come and watch us so yeah uh, they've done a fantastic job brilliant and do they compete in the women's um, and the women's top division or the second the championship? Um, so when I was there, we played yeah. championship and then went up into the premiership. So there was a big restructure within English rugby um, three years ago now. So they made a whole new league, like the premiership was completely restructured and Waterloo got into that. And then it was ring fence for three years. So there was no promotion, no relegation. Um, everyone just played. Um, and then there's been another restructure and unfortunately um, Waterloo missed out and Sail Sharks been put in um, mm. instead in the Northwest. Um, but they definitely were, when I was there, we were playing in the Premiership and um, this is my pillow. This is my first Premiership shirt that I wore um, that dad got made into a cushion for me, which is really cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, they just keep, keep working and keep raising the standard of women's rugby. Awesome. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And I want to take it back to the Beckett family growing up. Is it just the two siblings? And, and how was growing up? Were you at the club every 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 day, every Saturday? So oh, I have... it's not just... Oh, sorry, yes. I was no, saying there is not just the two of us. We have a very vocal third sibling. <laughs> who is, and I'll let, who's actually Sarah's twin. So Sarah has a twin called Kate, who... Nice. Um, well, I'll let you take the lead on Kate, S. Yeah, I mean, she's a bit different from us, I think. Um, Charlie and I are probably a bit more measured, a little bit more relaxed, and Kate is a in-your-face, won't-stop-talking, <laughs> ultra-ultra-supportive, um, nice. do-anything-to-be-there sort of person. Um, she just spent a year out in America, actually, um, in 
near Chicago um, in uni. So she's in uni um, and she's everywhere. I mean, she watched all my games through FaceTime. Um, they'd set her up so that like the TV was on and she'd watch the TV on FaceTime. Oh, um, nice. And she's just, she travels everywhere, doesn't she? Um, she's yeah, amazing. She's, she, so growing up, um, Kate, so obviously I played and then S is younger than me and started playing at a similar age, like seven or eight. Kate decided to rebel completely against rugby in our family. <laughs> so she just wanted nothing to do with it, hated it, didn't want anything. And then when she went to uni, was looking for a sports team to join socially and yeah. actually ended up joining the rugby team because the girls seemed the nicest, had the best fun. And of now she has, she has got the rugby bug as well. So it was hilarious. Like if you told me when my sister, when Kate Beckett was 10 years old, actually in 2020, we'd be in lockdown and actually the person driving us wanting to do a skills session in the garden would be Kate. <laughs> I would, you would, I would have told you it's crazy, but she's like, I, I just want to echo what I said, like as much as she did rebel against it, Kate has never moaned once about the fact that she on Saturdays and Sundays had to trip around the country and follow both of us. And now is just the biggest supporter, both physically there and if she can be, and then literally and mentally through text, through phone calls, through everything. She's, she's unbelievable. So, now, our dad, there was three of us growing up, so um, we were a busy household. Nice. So, our man had three as well. Uh, three boys, however, which I'm sure is a little bit different. But uh, uh, arguably, I'm sure you guys would be a lot more rough and tumble than we were with the three of you, with the, the rugby talent that we've got in that household. I'd say, and you jump in on this, I think, when I think back to our childhood, like, it's a strange. We had a great childhood, all three of us. Like the, de- the defining moment in our childhood probably would be our parents split when we were when I was ten, the twins were seven. So that was obviously a tough thing for us to go through. But actually, I'm, I wouldn't change a thing about our childhood. We had an amazing time, and if anything, that was probably the moment that brought the three of us. We're, we're genuinely, and tell me if I'm wrong, it would be weird if I am. We're probably three best mates. The twins are probably my two best mates in the world. Like we're incredibly fortunate that. Even if we weren't siblings, we choose to be friends. We get on really well. And that probably is what brought us so close. But the word that I think of when I'm thinking about growing up as well as just being the best fun was it was competitive in our house, especially like, and it was a different sort of competitive because we're different genders. Like, S was never going to be as fast as me, maybe growing up because I'm older and I'm a boy or as strong as me. But if there was anything she could compete with me on, my God, she was going to. So if it was something as silly as, okay, we're doing some passing practice. It wasn't okay. Let's see how well we can do. It's like okay, who can hit that? Who can hit that tire the most times in a row without missing? And it became a competition. Or if we're doing high, catching high balls, it was very much who could catch the most in a row without dropping one. And it was very competitive. And that that flowed over into everything. So it wasn't just rubber. So board games, Mario Kart on the Nintendo. We some of the biggest arguments we had was people <laughs> cheating on Mario Kart. Like everything in our house was competitive. But I think not to the point they ever soured a relationship or anything. So. We've been very lucky. I think you see that in everything we do still to this day. When we go home together, yeah. it's all the best, the best humoured competition, but it's very competitive in everything. And that comes with, we spend half our lives winding each other up and like taking the mickey out of each other when we can. So it's just, we had the best fun growing up and drove each other. And we had some tough times we went through together. We had great times that we went through together, but whatever was happening, the three of us always went through it together. Yeah. That's fantastic, don't have anything to add really I think nail on the head <laughs> I love the Mario Kart reference too we still had uh, at the World Cup of USA the boys still had the, the Nintendo DS and Mario Kart nearly every every night they would have that out <laughs> I want to, to find out more about the women's game in England so it, it seems from afar that England 
have one of the best um, professional um, women's rugby leagues, leagues in the world. It's probably fair to say that. I know um, New Zealand have the Farah Palmer Cup, obviously, but it seems like sort of the, the setup in England sort of outweighs that. Can you tell us about that top level of English pro- uh, pro- uh, professional rugby? And then also, obviously, you mentioned there are 28 centralised contracts given out by the RFU. Tell us a little bit about that process and sort of your journey and going from an amateur player to being a professional player in England. Yeah, um, so our league is called the Premier 15s. Um, Tyrrells have been our headline sponsor, but they haven't decided to sponsor us again. So I think they're on the lookout for a new sponsor now. Um, And it is basically 10 teams that have to apply to the league. And the RFU do like a bit of a franchise system where people apply and then they choose who are the best um, like people to compete, I guess. Um, So that started three years ago and then it's just been restructured again. so the the teams now are Saracens, Harlequins, Gloucester, Bristol, Worcester. Um, oh God, I've gone in a random order now. Exeter, a- down the Exeter, southwest. Sa- um, oh, Loughborough. Loughborough, Sale, um, Darlington, Malden Park, and Wasps. Um, and they're now competing in a league, um, which obviously hasn't started yet because of coronavirus, and we're a bit behind and stuff like that. Um, but. I think the RFU have done a really amazing job of sort of taking the time to restructure the league and make sure that everybody's meeting standards. So there's a set of minimum standards that you have to be able to meet to be within a chance of being in the league. And then it's reviewed every year. So if you're not meeting those standards, you have to like meet them. Or I think there might be financial penalties and stuff like that. Um, but I think some clubs have really run away with it, as in they've really taken the chance to invest and um, gone the next to the next level um and I think that's pushing other clubs to try and get there as well um but I think the league it's becoming more and more competitive and it's really exciting to be part of this process um and with regards to professionalism so our league is yeah. it's mainly amateurs so yeah um, we're mainly all amateurs, so girls are going to work and then come to train in the evening. I'm in a really fortunate position where I'm actually contracted by England or some of the Scottish girls are contracted by Scotland um, and we can train full time. So we train in the day and then train in the evening with the rest of the girls. Um, and so most of the league is amateur and then there's a few professionals. So I'd probably say there's up to 40 professionals in the league um, out of all of the clubs. Um, yeah. And then this year there's a salary cap that's come in because clubs have started to pay a little bit of money to players, um, which will, I think, really help some players. It's not enough to live on, but it's, it's the first step. And I think yeah. we have to just... I think the RFU have brought in the salary cap to make sure that it's sustainable so the league doesn't become yeah. um, just money orientated. I think that's a really sensible step. Um, and whether that will need to be reviewed or not is a whole different thing. But at the moment, I do think it's the right thing. For sure. Well, similar to MLR and that, you know, you need to make sure that your revenue is coming in uh, relatively comparable to player salaries, um, at least for the, for the time being. But uh, what, what about the sort of buzz of the, the competition? It, it seems like you can definitely tell what's there from abroad. Uh, crowd attendance and stuff like that, is, is it growing? Is it looking pretty good? Yeah, 100%. I think um, some clubs get more than others, and I think that's due to location. Or if you're um, with a male, like a big male team, like the, ha- the Harlequins or Saracens, you have that interest in the rugby already, and then people sort of see the women are there, and they're like, oh, we'll stay on, or 
you have a bigger fan base to choose from, basically. Um, so I think they tend to get higher attendances. But I think Harlequins um, do a really good job of promoting the game. Um, they have a fixture every year called the Game Changer, which is a massive event that they put on. It's a family day out. I think last year they got like a record crowd of like 4,000, 4,500, wow. something like that, which is amazing for women's rugby. Um, for fixture um but i think you see it reflected in the england fixtures as well um we've had record attendances of up to like eleven thousand this year um which was amazing we filled stadiums um and to have that atmosphere is just unreal and we've even seen uh there are a couple of american players that have come over and and competed in the competition Uh, i believe there's one or two and uh with you with you girls in the uh, uh, harlequins there or they have been? Well, so I don't think they're here anymore, but I think they were here before I came. So I think Christine Summer was definitely here. Um, yeah. back, and the girls loved her. She said she was an absolute force and tore up. Um, and I think nice. we are attracting more players from abroad. So we've got quite a few Canadians in the league. We've got a lot of Irish, Welsh, Scottish. Um, we've had a few French players in the league. I think the league is attracting people from all, all around the globe because it is recognised as one of the best women's, well, if not the best women's league in, in the world. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's awesome. And we'll have to, I know Christine's doing some fantastic work uh, with the uh, XB Foundation, um, which is working really hard to grow and develop women's opportunities in the state. So we'll have to make sure that she hears that, hears that little statement and commendation on her there from the girls. Yeah. Um, and then international experience. Obviously, you've uh, picked up a, a good array of caps now and you're pretty well experienced at the international level and becoming an integral part of that team. Tell us about your debut against the USA team, um, obviously at the same, the same stadium that Charlie made his debut at too, which is a pretty cool thing for the family. Yeah, I mean, I think... So I was actually recovering from an injury in the lead-up to that game. And they sort of said, if you can recover in time, we'll give you a debut. So I think I was in the gym for like, I don't even know how long a day. I was working like an absolute <laughs> woman possessed to try nice. and make sure that I got, um, I got capped. But like, I remember being, so at the time, funny story, I went to uni for 10 weeks. Charlie gives me a lot of stick for it, but it wasn't for me. And I dropped out. But I was actually, when I found out I was getting debuted, I was on the bus home from university so back to my accommodation and I just opened so it gets sent out on whatsapp the team sheet um and I opened it and saw that I was playing and starting and I literally just like sat there and then I phoned like the family and I was like you have to calm down because I'm on the bus like you can't scream down (laughs) um but no like I don't think anything comes close to the pride that you feel not just for yourself but for everything that everybody else has put in as well so mum and dad driving me to sessions for god knows how long and like standing in the wind and the rain it just makes all of that for you and for your family I think worth it and like hearing what Charlie did to come and watch my debut even um running through airports and like like I can can only imagine Charlie tell us about that so, so S is so for people who don't know. So I played for Jersey Reds two seasons. Jersey is they play in the English leagues, but it's actually not mainland England. So it's a little island close to France. It's nine miles by five miles. It's tiny. It's close to France than it is England, but England owns it. It's one of the Channel Islands. So it meant it was really tough for me to get to any of S's games because it's a flight. It's timings. I've got my own games, my own training. But the stars aligned for S's debut. And 
She's playing in London on the Friday night. I'm playing for Jersey against Ealing in London on the Sunday. So we train on the Friday. We fly on the Saturday. We play on the Sunday. So I go to our coach and said, after training on Friday, can I fly on the Friday night so I can go and watch the game and meet you at the hotel on Saturday? He's like, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Go and watch your sister. So I finish up training, get my lunch, go down to the airport with loads of time to spare. Like we've got all the time in the world. I'm there early. I'm sat having a coffee. I'm like, this is easy. No worries. I'm going to make it easy. And then a storm hits the island. Oh, no. And literally, so I'm just watching on the screen my flight be delayed half an hour, an hour, two hours. And I'm like, my God, I'm not going to make it. So finally, we get on the plane and we were, we were the last plane off Jersey that night before it got shut down for the night till the storm passed. And I yeah. will always love that captain for having, having the guts to fly us off that island because honestly, I thought we were going to crash. It was awful, the weather. <laughs> we land at Gatwick Airport in London and I'm now way behind schedule. Like, let's say I've got an hour of travelling to do. S kicks off in an hour and two minutes. So I, so I get off the plane and I start sprinting through Gatwick Airport. Like, I'm in my big coat because it's horrible weather. I am soaked in sweat. I'm sprinting through the airport. I've knocked over about three people in my way. Old women are getting knocked over. Children are getting knocked over. Just getting sorry shouted at them as I go past. <laughs> I finally get on the train, get the train to where I need to get to, and then cannot find a taxi for the life of me. Find out I have to get to another train station to get a taxi. So order the taxi in advance, and then my train gets delayed again. So I'm on the phone with this taxi driver. He's like, where are you? I'm going to leave. I'm like, please do not leave. I will pay you whatever you need for me to get there. So the guy yeah. or something stupid like that. I was like, it doesn't matter. So then get the taxi to Allianz Park. And he's like, oh, mate, I've got to drop you off here. I can't go up the drive. I like just threw him a tenner. I was like, take me up that drive. Get me up to push yeah. to the gate. So fall out with all my bags and everything at the gate. Got my ticket, give it to him. And I can see I've just missed the national anthem. I was like, that's a shame, but I'm here basically for kickoff. I was also like, I think if I'm going to cry at any point today, it'll be the national anthem. Because I know the pride I felt singing the national anthem when I played 18s, 20s, all that. That yeah. was when if I was going to cry before a game, I would. I was like, if I'm going to cry, watch my sister play, that'll be it. I've missed that, which is a shame, but I now think I won't cry, so I'll be okay. Nice. I'm on the phone to dad, like, where are you? He's like, we're up in this bit, come up to this bit, so I'm on my way. So I just stop and watch the game a little bit. And then S doesn't remember this or didn't see it. But she carries the ball about three metres away from him, the other side of on the pitch. I'm like walking down the street. And it suddenly hits me that I'm watching my little sister carry the ball for England and just <laughs> tears start rolling down my face. And I was like, oh, get a grip, Charles. Then take five minutes, get up to where mum and dad everyone's sat. And I can see like mum's crying. I'm like, oh, mum, get a grip. What are you crying for? <laughs> I've wiped my tears away. I was like, get a grip, but no. Honestly, the, it was the most, I went from being the calmest man in the world because I had all the time ever to get there to the most stressed man, like just running through children and old women to get them out of the way. I wasn't missing that. Oh, that, no, that's what a story. Uh, I was going to, talking off the back of that, Carrie, um, Sarah, do you remember your first touch in that game or was it all a bit of a blur, your first involvement? I do, why? <laughs> what um, was that? I can't say I do, to be honest. I think it was yeah. all a blur. I remember in the warm-up, I dropped every single high ball that went up. 
and I was thinking, oh God, this is not good. It was horrible weather. The, the rain was coming sideways. The wind, it wasn't even like normal wind. It was swirling around the ground, so you couldn't tell where the ball was in the air. I dropped every single high ball. And from analysis, we knew that they kicked to where I was standing in kickoff. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, it's my debut. If they're kicking off first, I'm going to drop the ball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are going to be bombs it, swirling around to the 22. Yeah. In the game, I actually caught every single kickoff, I think. So um, I nice. must have got bad ones out in, in the warm-up. Um, but people always ask about that day because it was a late-night kickoff. And throughout the day, I was so nervous. Like, my heart... I think I was wearing, like, a Fitbit or something. And my heart rate was, like, 10 beats per minute higher than it normally is. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not good for me. Um, but then, actually, when I went out for the warm-up, all my nerves just went away. Like, I think it's just playing rugby at that point. You've got a job to do. Yeah. Um, just another game yeah all the girls are super supportive and then when I sang the national anthem like look for my family in the crowd and was looking at them while I was singing and I think like that's when it hit you that this is this is what we've all worked for and I remember yeah. mum actually the other day she didn't realize when so after the um, game you go up for your post-match dinner and whatever um, and the family allowed in the family bit and I, we got presented our caps in the other room where we were having dinner where they weren't allowed in and I walked through my cap and I remember Charlie just turning around and he just started crying and I was like Charlie it's okay but it's so cute I'm sorry I outed you but it's so cute yeah he loves his family and loves his body <laughs> yeah 100% good man awesome well uh, it's kind of it's, it's fantastic because we've got two great narratives here with obviously SU and the, the women's game and then then Charlie you and uh, the men's professional game and then um, obviously you've faced a fair bit of adversity too um, with being involved in you know two premiership um, squads clubs and uh, spending a lot of time playing A-side rugby captaining as you mentioned Gloucester for two years and then you made the decision to go and play for Cornish for a couple of years felt like that was the right decision and like you said it's kind of funny that it's come full circle and COVID's been the thing that's provided the opportunity, this uh, COVID-affected competition to make your premiership debut and hopefully the first of many appearances at that level. Um, mate, tell us about the differences between your experience in premiership and championship rugby and you know your journey, because it has been a journey to date, an awesome journey. Yeah, it's all been a bit mad. Like I said at the start of the podcast, my plan was to... I, I was... I grew up supporting Leicester because they won things. So, so there was no team, big team near us to support. So I was like, right, I'm being a glory supporter. Who wins the league? Leicester win the league. I support Leicester. Ben was very fortunate that for a number of reasons, uh, well, actually, when I was 15, Sale told me, we think you're rubbish. We don't want you. And then Leicester actually said, no, we'll take a gamble. So I moved to Leicester, 16 years old, left home, moved, um, did my A-levels at a college in Leicester and lived with a family in Leicester for two years. And at 18, it was like, off you go into the big wide world. You've got your own house which was mad. Living with two of my best mates at 18, playing rugby was just a mad few years. But the plan was to just play for Leicester forever. And the first three years at Leicester couldn't have gone better. I um, academy captain, won the academy league one year, came second, third the year after. Um, made my Leicester debut, first team debut at 18. Like, it couldn't have been going better. And then it was actually when Aaron Major uh, came in as head coach. Um, I did pre-season, was playing number eight, actually playing the back row then in Leicester. Um, got man the match a few first-team pre-season games. It was going really well. And then him and Cockers, Richard Cockle, called me in for a meeting at the end of pre-season. And I was like, this is going to be a meeting where they tell me I'm going 
out of the academy full time with the first team properly because I was kind of between the two at the point. I think they call the development squad. So yeah. 19, 20 year olds who kind of do a bit of both. I was like, this is it. I mean, this is the year. So this is four years ago. I was thinking, this is my year to break through. And Maid just sat me down and said, mate, we love you. We think you're great, but you ain't going to be a back row, back row in my team. Not the way I want to play because I'm not the quickest. I'm more of a bit of a throwback the way I play in the back row. So I was like, right, okay, thinking, okay, he wants to play second row, which is obviously where I've ended up playing now. Um, and he goes, but we think you could be a world-class tight-head prop. And I was like, right, that's, uh, that's come from left field. Um, and then they were like, look, go away, have a think. So I spoke to a lot of people, family, coach I've worked with in the past, and got the opinions. And they're basically like, if you're going to do it, do it here, because you've got Dan Cole, who was arguably at the time the best tight-head in the world, and Tom Youngs, who had transitioned from um, centre to hooker. So two people to guide me and mentor me. And though, honestly, Coley and Younger couldn't have been better with me that whole year. They were amazing. Um, so I decided to do it. That's when I was at Leicester Lions in National 2, learned my trade. And then for a number of reasons that I won't get into, it wasn't the right thing for me. And I moved to Gloucester. Uh, and Gloucester wanted me to be a second row. So I was like, yeah, no, fine. That's my position. So settled into the second row. Did dabbled in the back row a few times for Gloucester, but kind of settled into the second row. Um, and yeah, it was going great first year, went really well, Capt- um, was very fortunate to be asked to captain the reserves after about three months of being here and did for the rest of my time here. Trained with the first team every day, uh, made my debut in the Anglo-Welsh Cup. Uh, we made the, the reserve team final that year that year, and narrowly lost to uh, Northampton. And then signed for another year with Gloucester, was full on with the first team at this point, captain the reserves still, played in Europe, played Anglo-Welsh, it was all going well in my eyes. They would tell my agent, we're going to re-sign Charlie. It's just working this out. Got called in for a meeting with David Humphreys and Johan Ackerman. And they kind of said, look, Charlie, a few things have changed. We've decided we're going to go with four senior second rows next year. You were pending to be our fifth. We've got nothing for you. And I was like, right. Okay. That's not ideal. So a bit of a panic on the phone to my agent. It was all set to go somewhere else um, in the premiership. That fell through, unfortunately. So I was like, you know what? I'm 22. I've only really played reserve team rugby. I need some first team rugby here. I'm going to drop down to the championship. That was when I moved to Jersey. I made the decision to move to Jersey, um, which is a big move, like personally as well. It was essentially moving abroad, kind of, because you're a flight away. Um, and I had a great two years in Jersey, rugby-wise. Uh, played a lot. I played 41 games in a season and a half because it got cut short because of COVID. So I was on to play just 50 games in two seasons, which would have been wow. a lot of rugby. Played a lot, learned a lot. Learned a lot about myself personally and professionally. I think I learned there how you need to handle yourself differently as a professional when you're expected to be in the starting 15 on match day 23 each week to how you handle yourself maybe when you're reserve team captain who's actually there to just kind of facilitate in training a bit. Like when I was at Gloss on my first stint, if I trained badly, it didn't really matter because I wasn't in the team for the weekend. Whereas at Jersey, if I, I was calling line outs, if I train badly, it affects the whole team's preparation for the game on Saturday. So I learned, sure, yeah. a lot, I learned a lot about what it meant to be a real top-level professional in those years. And I felt very much that coming into the back half of the season just gone before the pandemic, that I'd learned everything uh, I needed to to really step back up to the Premiership and get that shot to really make it this time. I felt like nice. I had the tools. And like I said, we were speaking to a few clubs and then the world went mad. Um, the pandemic hit and just rugby shut down and... Clubs have been hit financially over here. So everyone's talk just stopped. I'd already told Jersey at that point I wanted to leave because personally, I didn't love living on the island. It wasn't wasn't for me from a personal point of view. So then 
my contract expired with Jersey. And for the first time since I was 16, suddenly I actually technically wasn't a professional rugby player anymore. I didn't have a club. I was, didn't have anyone to report to. So I actually learned quite a bit about myself in that time. I've actually, there was no one who, if I didn't get up and train, no one was going to shout at me. No one was going to tell me off. So thankfully, I managed to motivate myself to keep training. And it was kind of through, I'm a sucker for a routine. I love a routine. Essie knows this. I love a routine. If I don't have routine in my life, I get a bit lost. So I just put a routine myself that I was getting up at seven every morning. I'd go and do my conditioning session, come home, have my breakfast. And we were very fortunate at home that we have weights. We have a, we have a what bike. We had the rugby club run out. So we were very fortunate I could train. So I'd have my breakfast. Then I'd do my weight session. Then I'd have my day. So my morning was taken up by training. So it kept me going. And then my attitude was that if a chance came along and I wasn't physically prepared, I'd never get over that. I'd never forgive myself for that. So that was that was my motivation to keep training. There was, I'm not going to lie, there were some dark days where I'm, I'm running Broncos on on the back pitch of the club and I'm like, well, why am I doing this? Like, this is horrible. I don't really know. But thankfully, when the call came from Gloucester, like I was talking to clubs and just trying to explore all options I could, but it was pretty silent. So I was not panicking, but starting to have a real hard look at myself and be like, you might have to consider what happens if no one wants you here. Like, there's just not a spot. Then when the call came from Gloucester, I'd kept myself fit enough that I impressed in the two-week trial, enough to get, I've got a short-term deal until the end of this season. Hopefully, I do enough to impress in that time that I get something longer or, worst-case scenario, impress another side. I'd love to stay at Gloucester. I love it here. Like I said, it feels like home to me now. Um, yeah. yeah, I was just fortunate that I had a support network around me, Ness and Dad and my girlfriend again, Mum, Kate, that were like, yeah, keep training, keep doing it, keep keep doing dealing with yourself like a professional rugby player because I thought my my actually was the moment I stop considering myself a professional rugby player that's the moment everyone else will as well and no one's going to want to sign you so I was lucky in that sense but it's been a bit of a roller coaster the last eight years but especially the last six months for all of us like there are bigger issues in the world than whether Charlie Beckett is going to get a professional rugby contract I completely appreciate that our mum's an NHS nurse she works in A&E every day she's been on the front line fighting the pandemic I could have been in worse situations it could have been it could have been more serious, but it's been a roller coaster, like I said, and I've learned a lot about myself. And like, like I said earlier, that debut was huge, and I feel like I've got everything I need now to really kick on and have a successful Premiership career. So fingers crossed, I get the chance to do that. But yeah, I've gone a bit roundabout on a story yeah. there that you probably didn't ask about. But no, that's... no, man, that's fantastic. I think it's a phenomenal story. Just you know, it shows a lot of people that you know if you do. If you do get dropped or or things don't go the way you planned, if you just keep working at it and you believe in yourself, you know, and you put your head down and, you know, you went and played 41 games for a championship, for, for uh, Jersey rather, you didn't yeah. sit on the sideline and mope and, and uh, you know, you just got after it and proved yourself and you found yourself back in the premiership, which is a phenomenal story. I was I was listening to, I've really enjoyed listening to Mags's Full Contact CEO podcast and I listened to the episode with Nate Ebner and something he said resonated with our to essay about the being a professional, just doing the right thing. When the lights come on, you can perform, doing all the right things and things like that. Kind of, there's, a, there's a quote I love from Jason Witten's one of my sporting heroes. We're, we're big Cowboys fans, God Dad is. We love our American sports. I'm wearing my Red Sox cap now, but we're, our first love is football when it comes to American sports. We love our NFL. And S, I'll let her boy in a second. She knows all the stats. She's a bigger fan than I am. But I love, love Jason Witten. He said something once. He said, I think I said it to you before, so I'm like, I'm a big believer in what he said when he said, success doesn't stem from the standards you adhere to occasionally. It derives from what you do consistently. And that just resonates. So it's not a lot of the time in lockdown. That was what I'd think back to of 
I have my standards. I, I don't apologize for, I have extremely high standards for myself. And also I expect the same from people around me. S, S and I have butted heads a few times on training where if we're training together, I might be being a bit of a, I can't say the word, but might be a bit of a stickler for it. But I'll, I'll have a go at her if I don't think she's hitting the standards I set for myself. If she wants to train with me, yeah. she hits my standards. Like if I say, we had a big run, if I say the session starting at 8 a.m., Sarah, she comes down the stairs at one minute past eight. I've started. I don't. I don't do like so. I'm a big believer that I kept myself going with that a lot in lockdown. And also, I've made out like S doesn't have ridiculously high standards for herself. There, she does as well. She has hugely high standards for herself, and we we can I think both drive people up the wall a little bit because and like you jumping on this S, like we expect that from people around us. And I think that's really important in a professional environment. Is you demand the highest standards of each other and whether it's me with the lads or S with the girls, you can have those open, honest conversations where you're pretty hard on each other. But you do that in Monday to Friday so that when it comes to Saturday, no one can live with you. And actually when you're on in the middle of the battle, I look to the man to my left, I'm like, I know he's going to deliver because he has all through the week or S looks at the woman to her right and goes, I know she's going to deliver. But she doesn't training for me every day. And it's just that trust. And I think that's how you build the trust is through demanding high standards from each other. Yeah, yeah I was going to... Sorry, go for it, Sarah. Um, I was just gonna say, like, firstly, I can't speak highly enough of Charlie throughout lockdown. Like, I know I had dark days, and it gets lonely training by yourself. And I had, I knew I had a job to come back to. Is in like I've signed to Quinns and I'm signed with England. Like, I knew that I was gonna have a job to come back to. I can't imagine having those darker days when you you're not training. Well, you are training for a purpose, but you're not training particularly for anybody or like you have to do it all yourself like I think Charlie's work ethic throughout that was amazing um and I think secondly like when Charlie says or oh, 801 like my even though we do the same job my day looks very different to Charlie's because we have to work around people also being amateurs so my day mainly doesn't start till 12 o'clock in the afternoon whereas Charlie might have done like two sessions by that time so when he was training in the morning in lockdown, I wanted to train in the afternoon because that's what my day looks like usually. So when he was like, oh, I'm going to do conditioning at eight, eight if you want to join, I was like, mm, I'm not sure I want to join at eight o'clock because I'm never usually even up <laughs> by then. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I think like Charles says, he's got ridiculously high standards for himself. And then I think I tried to have the same high standards for myself. And I think that's the only way that you drive to get better and have people around you drive to get better um, and create that ultimate success that you want. Oh, it's a good point where creatures are habit. And, and it's funny that Charlie, that's, you know, what you've done. And so it's what you want to continue to do is, you know, that's, that's your routine. And then same for us. And it's uh, not dissimilar to major league rugby over here. And that there are so many different schedules because we're still catering for the part-time and even uh, practice-playing um, individuals that are still a massive part of the team makeup over here. And you know, there are teams that only train in the evenings. There are some that train in the mornings, two days a week, and it's sort of a little bit all over the place. Um, and it's just a it's nice to kind of hear you guys talk about that element of uh, difference there. Um, I was going to ask one thing you talked about is sort of that discipline, and, and kind of my thought on it is if you can do it playing rugby you know, you can go on and do do it in the rest of your life, you know, whatever it is, whatever comes after rugby. Are there other things aside from footy that you guys are working on at the moment or had a chance to explore during the quarantine aside from footy? Um, Essie has her keyboard in the back of her room. So let me tell you something about Sarah Beckett. <laughs> Sarah Beckett is one of the hardest working and motivated and dedicated people I know, unless 
she can't do something straight away when she doesn't <laughs> want to do it. So Ines has a slight natural talent, so she's an excellent guitar player. Unbelievable like, guitar I, player. I just play a little bit. I'm not excellent. Okay, Sarah's an excellent guitar player. But, <laughs> and in lockdown, decided she wanted to expand. She's also a great singer, but wanted to expand her musical repertoire to a keyboard. So buys herself a keyboard, which you'll see in the back of her room on this Zoom call. Um, S starts on the keyboard and just doesn't have the natural talent for it like she did guitar. She's not bad at it, but she hasn't got it straight away. She's not Elton John on the keyboard straight away. <laughs> so it just goes... Well, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm like, Sarah, you bought the keyboard, do it. She's like, no, I'm not doing it. So then when she just moved into a new house, you don't know this, S. She just moved into a new house, and I packed the van up with Dad to take her stuff down. And he was like, right, that's everything. And I walked back in the house, I was like, hang on. I was like, Dad, whack this keyboard in. Take it down to her. She's going to learn to play it. So I'm trying to make her learn to play the keyboard because she said she was going to. Yeah. Dad, Dad made a deal with me that I have to book 10 lessons and pay for them in advance so that I actually go to them um, and then if I still can't do it then or don't enjoy it I can give it up then but if if I can play it then that's a bonus <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah you guys have got Paula CK at Quinn's too Sarah yeah. so potentially that could be a, a duet at some oh, point no, down he, the line here he's amazing I'm not duetting with him he'll show me up he was unreal <laughs> did you see the stuff he did on Quinn's Ooh. oh it's incredible I, re- I remember him um you know, at uh, in prep to the World Cup, sort of he'd be down in the team room nearly every night, just jamming away a little bit. And now he's somewhat of an internet sensation with his musical ability, isn't he? Yeah, he's amazing. Well, I will be following up on that, Sarah, and uh, getting Paul to get in your ear for a little, a little duet. Yeah, you to get the guitar or keyboard out. Right, what um, did I tell you that? <laughs> <laughs> nice and then, Charlie I, I know that mate you, you also got stuck into some uh, mate I saw all sorts there was uh, you, you had a pod, podcast going you had some some beard grooming products I believe were involved in there in some capacity definitely some coffee element what, what's going on your side yeah so I decided to keep myself busy as well as training I need someone to do in the afternoon so like you said earlier I'd, I'd hosted the podcast um for Jersey, I'd hosted the Red Alert for the Jersey podcast, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I co-host a, um, a show on professional wrestling because I'm a big professional wrestling fan. So I co-host the pro wrestling show for BBC. So I thought I'm very lucky in the fact that I've played with and against some really brilliant rugby players, and some, and I know in other fields in football and F1, some really interesting people. And I thought there's a chance like to do something here where people might want to hear the conversation we have. So. I started doing Instagram Lives. I called it Isolation Conversation because it rhymed. Um, and just got boys that I played with against. Some of the girls, S did one with me and Holly H, who's one of our friends who's played for England Sevens. And then uh, Zoe Harrison and Rosie Gallagher, who were two Red Rose as well, did play for Saracens, did one. Loads of lads who I played with and against all around the world. And we just did basically a podcast form like this, a conversation on Instagram. People could watch it live. And that was it. And then the last few, actually, Instagram let me save to my page I think there's like nine of them are on my Instagram page so that's quite cool and then off the back of that I got a bit of attention of oh Charlie can actually talk like he's actually quite good at talking as I'm showing here you can't shut me up is the problem (laughs) Um, so then actually a few like a beard grooming people these man-made beard company I'm now an ambassador for them even though my beard doesn't look too great at the moment so don't tell them that (laughs) but so I get some beard on stuff like things that are cool but the one that was really cool is 
um, I've got a lad I went to school with a professional footballer, so I did one them with him, and it was a really interesting conversation about the similarities of us coming through in rugby and football together, the challenges we faced, and really interesting chat. And he, um, his brother runs a coffee company, and Essie and I love our coffee. And professional players, you train and then you go for coffee. It's kind of how it works. Um, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the one of the pros of being a professional player is you get to drink a lot of coffee. And I'm unfortunately addicted to caffeine. I get headaches and I don't have it, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> so his um, coffee company got in contact with me and said they wanted to get involved in the rugby market more. Would it be interesting to do it with them? I said yes. And basically... I was all set to start. They were going to sponsor. I'm, I'm still going to do it. It's going to be called the Brew with Beckett podcast, where I basically have people on. We both have a brew. I have a chat. And what I like, I think, is good is I think some of the lads are more open with me than they will be with a journalist in an interview or something because, one, we're mates. Two, they know I understand what they're going to do because I do it as well. And three, yeah. it's just it's more of an informal chat and a conversation. So I, I was all set to start that literally the week that Gloucester called me. So I actually put it on the back burner of I kind of need to focus on the rugby 100% here. My plan with that, and they've been, the company have been great. Uh, they're called 92 Degrees. They've been great with whenever you're ready, mate. We're not in no rush. Like, take your time whenever you're ready. So hopefully nice. in the next few months, I'll be launching that, which will be really exciting. Uh, and just something to do as well. I, you said uh, I'm lucky. I write a column for Talking Rugby Union. So I did a bit of writing. And I really enjoy media work. And I do think a lot of rugby players, a lot of sports people have great opinions and great thoughts that maybe we don't get across as well in um, stereotypical interviews with journalists. So I think anywhere yeah. we can, whether it's through a column, through a podcast, a bit more colloquial, and that's a really good way to do it. So that's hopefully the plan with that. It could be a disaster and crash and burn and we'll do one series and never be heard of again. But we'll see. So hopefully we'll launch sure that. Won't be. Yeah, hopefully we launch that in the next few months. I've already um, had a conversation with you about you coming on it. So hopefully get you on it at some point as well and um, talk about US rugby a bit more. But yeah, so that'll be exciting. But I'm very much just fully concentrated on my own rugby at the moment and trying to get my career back to where I want to be, playing the Premiership week in, week out. Oh, man. No, awesome. It's great to see you working on that little endeavour, among others, on the side too. And I look forward to seeing that come to fruition. Um, and something that's popped into my mind, I wanted to ask, obviously, you played series the other night. Was there anyone, um, or has there been anyone in training at Gloucester that you, you've thought, wow, they're just another level when, you know, a few of those collisions on the other, the other week. Was there anyone that you're like, wow? So, yeah, I'm gonna, there's going to be some names dropped here. Um, for I'll pick them up, don't worry. Thanks, Sarah. Um, <laughs> at Gloucester moment, Danny Cipriani does things that I, I don't know how a human can do that on a rugby pitch. He's just, his skill set is next level, but also his speed of thought and the way he sees the game, then you will lead a team meeting and you watch him talk about it and you're like, how does this man see rugby that way, that quickly and then have the skills to act on it? He's he's incredible. He's made me look a fool a few times in training already. I'm like, Danny, I'm on trial here, mate. Can you try and not make me look so bad? Um, but he's excellent. I think the best professional I've seen is Billy Twelve Trees, uh, who obviously lost the last time I was here. He's still here. Bill Twelve is just talk about doing the right thing at the right time consistently so that on a Saturday you can perform at your best and Bill just ticks all the boxes he's he's a next level of professionalism uh, watching Johnny May and Louis Zamet race each other is ridiculous they're two of the quickest men I've ever seen um, it's and I'll try and run behind them it's quite funny a kick will go through and the three of us will be next to each other at the start 
and then it's a 30 metre kick and I'm somehow 20 metres behind. But I'm not sure how they've not sure how they've done that. Um, and then in the past, I think the one that I always remember was at Leicester. I was so fortunate to be there when Brad Thorne came. Yeah. And he was just... I remember reading on Twitter that we signed Brad Thorne. I was like, I've grown up watching this man. Like, this man's one of my heroes. And get to train with him and just sit and have lunch with him and talk to him about rugby and how he sees the game and why he does this. And Brad, when you're in this position, why did you do that? And then also off the pitch, how he was 40 years old at Leicester and still won the best second row of the league. Like, Brad, how, how have you had such longevity across union and league and then winning everything in every league in the world? Just incredible. I could sit and eulogise about him all day long and would happily sit and talk to him for hours and end about rugby. So there's a load of people I haven't talked about. The, the Young's brothers, Dan Cole, who I spoke about earlier. Um, just so many great players I've been so fortunate to train and play with and just learn from. Yeah, mate, that's... Uh... Oh, it's awesome to hear about some of those stories. I remember seeing Brad Thorne um, for the winners with the Highlanders briefly, um, bench pulling something like 160 kilograms, something that, that was just like, I didn't think was, was even possible. Uh, I know his name's still up on the record books there um, at the NZHPU. Um, and then Essie, is, is there anyone that comes to mind in the England national team as well that's sort of like that, that next level when you're, when you're training, you're just sort of thinking, how on earth does she do that? Yeah, I think, obviously, Emily Scarrett, I mean, she's not World Rugby Player of the Year for nothing. Like, her skill set, her ability to do everything that you could ever want anybody to do um, on a rugby pitch is amazing. The way she sees space and um, and just, I, I don't know how she does some of the stuff she does, but um, on the flip side, like, Abby Scott, she's, again, like like Charlie says about Ultimate Professionals, like, she's so... Um, dedicated so motivated so um she's very intense in the fact that if you get something wrong you definitely know about it but I mean I I, you need those people to drive the team forward and I think that's one of the best things about me coming to Queen's is I get to see her day in day out and ask her questions about like lying out isn't one of my greatest strengths but I'm really working on it and to have somebody there who knows so much about it and can tell me every little thing that I'd ever need to know about what I need to do there and like she, she's more than happy to help um is is amazing I think training alongside these people on a regular basis will only push my game forwards and I think um the thing that we're seeing I think we've got really exciting talent coming through still so like um there's people in training I, I remember when I first went in and I looked around and I was like I watched these people on television and now I'm training with them or I'm in a full-time program with them like it's crazy um yeah, so I, there's there's some amazing players on our side. The, the thing the thing Sarah is not saying to us though, and she won't. So I have to say it for her. She's going to go red saying it's like she talks about people going, "My God, I can't believe I'm training with Abby Scott. I'm training with Sarah Hunter. I'm training with Emily Scarrett." What what S doesn't realize or won't say is like girls who are eighteen, nineteen who are going to play join Harlequin for the first time now are saying that about her. They go, "My God, I can't believe I'm getting trained with Sarah Beckham." Like. I've got to say this, tell story. It's one of my favourite stories. It was the moment I realised what a big deal Sarah was and what a small deal I was compared to her. I went to watch her play for Waterloo against Saracens um, in the first year of the Premiership, I think. So, second, so S is 18-19, so she's a kid still. She's still a kid now. She's 21. Um, but she's an absolute kid. She's, she's played a few times for England. She's still finding her feet in the league, um, but obviously very talented, obviously going to be a big deal. And I'm in the queue for coffee because, of course, I'm in the queue for coffee. And there's a guy behind me who's looked at me a few times and I've thought, yep, 
I've, my ego's been talked about. I've gone, you know, as I am. I've got his obviously a big Gloucester <laughs> fan. And he goes, um, he goes, sorry, mate. I said, yeah, sorry. Thought oh, I'll pretend I haven't noticed him noticing me. So yeah, he goes, um, you, um, you Charlie Beckett? And I go, yep, you are. Thought here we go. He's gonna ask for a photo or an autograph or something. And he looks me dead in the face. He goes, that's it. You're Sarah's brother. I just went, oh wow. I went, it, that it's happened. Now for the rest of my life, I'll be Sarah Beckett's brother. Uh, but wasn't, was, it, wasn't it Scott Beeman who's the England backs coach? It was one of the England backs coach. I don't always <laughs> tell that bit of the story because it ruins it a little bit, Sarah. But still, I'm very much, people talk a lot to me about Essie and how great she is. And she's a real role model for a lot of young girls coming through. But I, I don't think she fully appreciates that or realises that always. But she is and she does an incredible job at it and impresses me every day with that. Well, thank you very I much. Know. I don't think it's true, but... No, that's awesome. It's, it's great to see, you know, how much you guys help each other and look out for each other and care about, you know, each other's development on and off the footy field. So, um, no, what a great story that is. Charlie, Sarah's brother. I love it. Um, last one before we get into the, the, the quick fire section and then we'll wrap up. Um, obviously, Major League Rugby started up and we've got WPL, Sarah, in the women's game. Um, and then USA Rugby as uh, the national governing body uh, and the, the international teams. What's your take on, you know, USA Rugby, MLR? What are you guys seeing? What are you hearing um, from two yeah, very well-qualified rugby professionals over on the other side of the pond? What, what's your take on what's happening in America? I think from a women's point of view, I'm not that clued up on the men's side of things. Like I have watched a bit of MLR and obviously talked to Charlie about it. But from my point of view, USA are one of the sides that we always sort of worry about um, because they're obviously such fantastic athletes. And, you know, you guys are quite young in rugby, really. Like women's rugby, you're quite young in getting to know it and whatever else. Um, And just your athletic ability and we know every time we play you that you're going to be better um, than you were the last time that like you see from my debut to the super series you guys were so much of a different side and um, you run us a lot closer and we definitely see you as one of the up-and-coming nations who are going to push us absolutely all the way and I think will cause upsets that people won't see coming and I think um, it's really exciting to have those sides in and I think the women's league is going from strength to strength from what I hear I think um, from what I hear they've had a bit of a tough time with funding um, but I think there's girls um, really working hard I think is it Alicia Washington and Christine Sommer doing that sort of thing like they're really fundraising for that and I think those girls deserve a massive shout out because they're helping to fund a program that I think we could see one of the next fantastic great rugby sides um come out of so a massive shout out to those guys who are doing such a fantastic job for sure i think it was awesome too watching the, the super series down in san diego um and how close those fixtures were and you know those are the best rugby nations in the world and usa on occasion was going toe-to-toe with some of those teams so i think um you know with developing infrastructure it's a pretty pretty awesome um bit of gleaming light there um, that hopefully they can continue to build on. And, and like you said, Alicia and uh, Christine are doing some fantastic work and will continue to do so and we can all get behind that and what they're doing. Yeah, 100%. It's really exciting for you guys, I think. For sure. And then Charlie, obviously you're relatively well-versed in the MLR. You surprised me with with your knowledge um, in many different ways, but MLR was one that you were pretty on, on, the, on the buzzer with. Um, what's your take on, let's, let's stick with Major League Rugby, what's your take on MLR and sort of its future? So I think what does first, it need to do? I think the first thing I say is like, I, as much as I enjoy 
wrestling and my coffee and my podcast. I love cricket. I love all these American football. Rugby is my first love and first passion. And anyone who knows me knows that when I'm passionate about something, I invest myself completely. And so I'm, the word we use over here in America is a Norse. It's called a rugby Norse. So you just love it so much. That's why I, I just, if there's rugby to be watched, I'll watch it. So the MLR, as soon as it came about in 2018, was it 2018, I think, the first season? Um, it very much got my attention. And especially with my love for American sports anyway. So I was like, this really could be something over here. So I remember watching the first se- season and then you compare the first season to the five games you had of this season, it's a different league completely. First of all, obviously, there's more teams, the attendances are higher, but the standard of rugby is completely different. So I think it's such an exciting thing because, like I said, right at the start of the podcast, I do think America's a sleeping giant of rugby for a number of reasons, I think. First of all, I think American people will love con- they love con- love sport but particularly contact sport and rugby is it's as high a contact sport as you get it's brilliant to watch when you get a good game i think there is thousands of athletes who maybe do not make it in their preferred us sport whether that is baseball football hockey basketball and the transferable skills from basketball and football particularly to rugby are they're obvious they're so there's so much untapped potential in the athletes and the infrastructure, I think it's huge. But when you say, what does it need to do? I've been listening actually to a lot of, I said earlier, Alex Magui's podcast. I look very interested one with um, George Kilbrew, the uh, commissioner of the MLR, and talking about what they need to do. And I think the big one, and they said it, is you've got to get people playing rugby. So especially kids, because if the kids are playing, the parents have to take them. And then if the kids, so let's use Boston, for example. If the kids, and I've seen you guys, the Free Jets, in unbelievable camps through lockdown and when it's been set on, on Zoom, and then when it's been safe to do camps, been doing camps. If the kids are going to the camps, the parents got to take them. If the kids are being coached by the Free Jacks players, and they're like, oh, by the way, lads, girls, everyone, we're playing on Saturday. They're going, well, we want to go and watch. So an eight-year-old can't take himself or herself to the game, so the parents have to go. And then that's, so you get people through the gates, and that's when you sell rugby to them, because rugby is unique. There is no sport like it. You absolutely batter each other for 80 minutes and sit and have a beer in the changing rooms or the clubhouse together after. No other sport does that. No other sport is all friendly after like we are in rugby. The fans sit together and there's no risk of everyone having a fight. There might be a disagreement whether it was a penalty or not, but that's as much as it gets. So you sell rugby as this excellent family sport, which it is, for boys and girls. And that's so key. You've got to get girls playing as well because you've got a clean slate almost. So if there's a bit of rugby and stuff, but this is the first time professional league is here and here to stay in America because you had the league that failed, kind of what it was called, in 2015-16, yeah, this, the MLR is here to stay. It's proved that there is a place for rugby in America, and it's so exciting. So now you've got to get kids playing it, families involved, and it's a bums-on-seats thing. Get people watching it, and then it's just, I just, you can hear that, I think it's such an exciting prospect. So I think people playing, people watching, and then there's a real responsibility on the players and the clubs and the franchises to get it right. So the big, big responsibility on, you, you can't, you can't dictate how the style's going to be because it could be a horrible day and it's a 3-3 draw. But actually, after the game, you're engaging with the fans. On social media, you're engaging with the fans. You're, put, you're portraying yourselves as good professionals and just doing the right things all the time. And it's a big responsibility, but I think it is so exciting. There's so much to be done. And I think I listened to that podcast. I think what George Kubler said was really interesting. Of, you take the model of the MLS 25 years ago. Because now the MLS competes with the big four American sports. They refer to it as the big five now. And rugby is more marketable to the American market than soccer. I've done inverted commas because it's football. 
but soccer is. Yeah. So it is more marketable. The one thing they haven't got is the underbelly of people playing it in America that football, soccer had when the MLS launched. So just get people playing. And, mate, you've been, and the Free Jacks have been an absolute forefront. I follow you on all social media. Like, so engaging, getting people playing. And it's huge. And then you will attract the bigger names. Chris Robshaw signing for San Diego is huge for the league. Now, it might not be ideal for New England Free Jacks. You've got to deal with Chris Robshaw <laughs> once a season. But the league is huge. Mar Nonu, Baston Rowe even though he may not have given the best representation of himself. And if you listen to this, Matteo, sorry, but he didn't. <laughs> but these big names coming over, suddenly there are eyes on the league. So that's when the rest of the players have to deliver a standard rugby that people watch and go, Christ, this American rugby is good. Like, and the more you get, the more you're going to get more players over. You look at the, you've been a very busy man in lockdown, Mr. Kindly. You've made some unbelievable <laughs> signings and are building a roster that is so competitive and so exciting. I just think, like I said, the sleeping giant that I really think is waking up. There are the challenges of the university system is different to anywhere in the world. So the draft and people, I think there is nowhere in America, sorry, there is nowhere else in the world like America that puts a huge emphasis on people getting a degree and going to college. So you have to somehow get rugby into the colleges that you don't get people playing through school, then lose them for three years and get them back. I don't know how you do that. I haven't got the ins and outs of that, but... I just think it's really waking up and it's so exciting. And I, I've had conversations with you, Tom, and things of it. It's definitely something that if it, the chance comes in my career, I'd be very interested in exploring because I think playing in America would just be an unbelievable experience and so exciting. And if the opportunity ever comes, I'd love to take it. It was the right time for me, for a club, for whatever, for my family, everything, all that. But I just think, yeah, I've rambled on again. But it's so exciting. And I think from what I've heard, the right people in place for in 10 years we sat here going what a league the MLR is it's getting thousands of fans in the standard rugby is exceptional and I think just to piggyback that for women's rugby as well I think you guys have a unique chance with the women's game as well because the men's game isn't as big as it is in England maybe um and you guys have done such a phenomenal job with women's soccer like that league is amazing and I think it shows that in America there is an appetite for women's sport as long as it's marketed right and it does the right thing and I think actually you guys have a really good chance to market your women like the soccer's being marketed like Charles says it hasn't got maybe the underbelly of like the soccer did but I think like the more accessible it is to people people will play more and you'll get better players coming through and more people who are know what the game's about and I think that's a really exciting prospect for sure. One thing we like to say to all the girls that take part, and you guys raise great points there, and, and Charlie, you've definitely got a, a future in stunning. I'm not sure whether it's presenting or, or potentially being a GM yourself or a CEO or whatever it is, but, mate, very well spoken, uh, you two, S. But uh, there are 20 varsity women's programs in the collegiate system uh, in the United States, which, which means that they're, they're funded by the university. So they get access to full, like, you know, full professional facilities, uh, strength and conditioning, medical, everything. Um, great opportunities. They offer scholarships and, and it's a phenomenal pathway to not only play rugby at a higher level and then get seen for the international scene, but also obviously to, to train at a higher level as well. And uh, we've been trying to do our utmost to sort of guide girls in that direction and show them that, look, this is a real option here um, that you can be exploring. So, we, yeah, we definitely... Um, want to see the women's game succeed desperately um, in New England and in the States, I think, too. Quick fire. So our last last two questions here, we've just got two quick ones to, to leave you on. Uh, and I thank you so much for the time and, and making this happen. It's been 
outstanding to find out more about you. Um, Sierra, I didn't know too much about you and it's been a pleasure. Um, and Charlie, to find out more about you and your journey too, mate. It's been phenomenal. Um, but our first one is your favourite free jack and why. And, and Sarah, we'll, we'll extend that to a USA national team player, potentially, if, if that's better suited. And we can pick a, uh, a role model from the women's game too. But um, yeah, favourite free jack or USA rugby player and why? Um, I think mine's maybe, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right, but I'll give it a go. Is it Nalia Dawai? Is he the back oh, row? Oh, nice job. Yeah, 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 nice shot. Nalia Dawai, yeah, yeah, nice shot, I mean, yeah. I mean, how can I go against him? He playing the same position as me, you know, we've got a vibe going. He knows what, what, what the game's about. Um, that 6-8 position, I think anybody who goes there and tears up, I mean, yeah, all credit. Good stuff. Yeah, hard-hitting Lucy. Good, yeah, good research there is. Love it. Yeah, Charlie? Um so I think anyone who knows me would absolutely expect me to go for someone in the engine room because that's where I live. So uh, Jackson Thebe, Connor Kinnikin, or Josh Larson. But I'm going to surprise everyone here. Because, and also, I think you've signed some excellent ones like Jack Ram, who's come in. And is it Te- – I can't say his name. He's South African back row. You've signed Tom. you got that Tira Matimbo, yeah. Tira, yeah. They're going to be unbelievable. I played against Jack enough to know he's going to do a great job for you. But So when I'm doing all that horrible work, clearing rocks, mauling – Tackling. I'm doing all that. I want to know that when the ball gets out wide, I've got someone with some X factors to score tries for me. And we have, like I said earlier, Johnny Mays, Lurie Zamets. You have Bowden Wacker. And my word, that man scores tries. So he's my favourite free jack because he does everything on a pitch I wish I could do. And I absolutely <laughs> can't. But also, if I was mauling and scrummaging and doing all the horrible work for you guys, I'd know that if I give him some space, it's going to be worth it because he's going to score a try. I saw, it was announced yesterday that you've got him back which is huge because some of the tries he scored last season, especially those ones against Rooney in um, Vegas on the opening weekend were unbelievable. So he's my favourite. Yeah. I've gone for the glory, which is very unlike me. But yeah, Bodenbach is my favourite free jack. Yeah, no good reasoning behind it though. We're very, yeah, very excited to have Bodine back. Uh, we only saw him twice out of the five games. He picked up a shoulder injury. Um, he careered into Ben Foden off a chasing a box kick and just launched himself into Ben Foden and had like a, a dead shoulder, a dead arm for a the best of three, best of three or four weeks after that, unfortunately. So we didn't see him back until the New Orleans game where he had another blinder. Um, but yeah, two good choices. Well done. And then our, our last one is stadium song for the Free Jacks playlist. So um, I mean, you guys are both very well accustomed with running out uh, to some of the biggest biggest stadiums in the world. So what gets you going pre-game? For for me, it's it's easy. It's easy. Like my favourite song. I think anyone should have it. Uh, to run out to because I think the fans can really like bang their feet and the boards and stuff in tune to it is um, ACDC Thunderstruck I think it's excellent I love it we nice. we got brought up on old school rock and roll by dad like being driven around the country dad listened to his rock and roll so we, we got on board with it early yeah ACDC Thunderstruck for me every day of the week good stuff love it Charles it's a tough NDC. one I don't know what, what I would want in the stadium. I know what I listen to, like, pre-game and stuff, but I don't know if everybody else wants to listen to that. <laughs> you can't go for one of your favourite country songs here, because it's not going to get everyone going. Singing about a pickup truck and a, heart, a broken heart isn't going to get everyone going before the, uh, before the game, so you need to pick something good here. I know, but that's what I listen to pre-game. <laughs> um, oh, I actually don't know. I'm really stuck. That's all good. Oh, I'll tell you what, one thing that didn't uh, 
Oh, the um, when we played England um, at and Kobe um, in the World Cup in our first pool game um, with the it's called Swing Low Sweet Chariot, right? Or is it called Swing yeah. Low or Swing or Sweet Chariot? Swing Low Sweet Chariot, yeah. That was like one of the most memorable moments of my life, and and concerning as well. Just the amount of volume at a noise around the stadium. It didn't feel like we had one single supporter there, with the whole you know, stadium singing that and erupting in that. And then we got hammered from the first from the first moment of the game too. I think Paul Will Hurley got smashed off the kickoff and that sort of set the tone. Um, but yeah, no, that's uh, definitely one that I, I don't know if I'd like to hear that or not at a Free Jacks game. I guess we're the Free Jacks, free from the Union Jacks. So it wouldn't make sense to have that, would it? I think it's a weird one. Like we're huge Liverpool fans in football and it's strange like, if you took uh, You'll Never Walk Alone out of context, that is not a motivating song in any any sense of the word. But I was very lucky. I grew up with a season ticket to go and watch Liverpool every other Saturday with my godfather. We'd go and like the thought of standing in Anfield with You'll Never Walk Alone playing, genuinely, it makes the hairs on my arms stand up. It's just, oh, it's spite and the atmosphere is unbelievable. And that's just an organic thing that happens. So I think looking for an anthem so run out music's one thing, but looking for an anthem for a side, I don't think you can force it. I think the side will find a song or the fans find a song and then when everyone buys in, it doesn't matter what a song is. It could be Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. But if you've got 80,000 yeah. people singing it passionately, that's going to get your juices flowing. So I think that's one that's like, Swing Low Sweet Cherry isn't a particularly motivating song. But when you hear Twickenham all singing it in unison, there's nothing like it. So like you said, it's one of those, I think if, if the Free Jack fans, because that was something that was, sorry, I'm going on again, we're trying to wrap up, but heartbreaking for you guys last year was you didn't you didn't get a home game you had your first home game ready for St. Patrick's Day in Boston can you imagine the atmosphere and then the pandemic hit so it's so exciting to see what it's going to be like one thing dad always told us about Boston from when he lived there was Boston people are like Liverpool people they get very passionate about their sport and when they get behind it there's nothing like it so that's exciting but yeah I think run out music and an anthem are quite different but yeah yeah no, that's a good anthem Whilst Charlie's rambled, I've thought of a song that you could run out to. The the like intro to intro to all of the lights by Kanye West. Oh yeah, nice. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, very good. Yeah, I reckon that'd be sick. You could have a live show going there too. I know Alex Magoo's got some grand ideas about you know the similar to the Crusaders, <laughs> the horse running out with the lantern. <laughs> so the Sarah has just started doing like air guns off for all of the lights, no, that's, which is. <laughs> That's where the lights were coming, like, bam, 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 bam. Right, bam, it's bam. okay. Thanks, <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> oh, no, that, that's awesome. Sweet. All right, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, guys. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us an insight into, you know, rugby in, in England and um, insight into journeys. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and I look forward to, you know, a continued relationship with you both moving, moving forward. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having us on. It's been really cool to chat to you guys and learn more about uh, the Free Jacks and the American system and stuff like that. Yeah, thanks for having us on. And um, yeah, I think you'll have two very keen eyes watching the MLR for, uh, for next season, cheering the Free Jacks on from afar. So no, thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Thanks so much, guys.